As you're returning to your seats, just make sure that you have a bulletin that has an insert in it that will contain our scripture reading for this morning. Um, be helpful. One thing that I want you to know, uh, we're, we're beginning a series in the book of Ruth, and one of the challenging things practically for our church with this series will be the reading of scripture. We usually have our scripture in uh, the insert of our bulletin, but there's going to be some passages in this story that will just frankly take up way too much space. And so, because of that, I'd ask that you would bring your Bibles. I know some of you have a habit of bringing your Bible. It's a great experience, or good habit, I should say, just to have your Bible, to write notes in your own Bible, um, if you like doing those sorts of things. Um, but um, what we'll probably do on the longer passages is just print out some of the the more um, pertinent verses from that text that when we reference back to it or preaching through the text, um, you'll see it right in your bulletin. But the vast majority will be read right from the Bible. Um, the book of Ruth comes um, in the Old Testament. Um, it's right after the book of Judges and right before Samuel. So if you're trying to figure out where it is in your Bible, it's closer to the beginning uh, I would probably say it's about 25% of the way through it. Um, and it is a very small book in the midst of some books that are quite large. But we're going to be studying this book for the next eight weeks. And I, I want to I give you three reasons why we're doing this um, before we're jumping into our text. The first reason why we're going to study the book of Ruth is, is this. Is that as Christians, we need to explore and to study the Old Testament because the Old Testament is the very foundation of our faith. While the Old Testament doesn't articulate what our Savior went through or what Jesus' death means for us today, it does form the theological foundation for what Jesus did indeed do. So without the message of the Old Testament, here's the problem. We will not understand what Jesus went through and what all the Old New Testament made of. Without the Old Testament, you have no sense of the New Testament. Of course, there's one great difficulty with the Old Testament. It's old. It is old. Perhaps like me, you've attempted to read through the Old Testament from cover to cover. Yeah, I'm going to do it. But by the time you hit Exodus 35, I mean, your eyes glaze over. And you're like, okay, maybe I can push through Exodus 40. Okay, I got through Exodus 40. And then you get to the book of Leviticus. And then you're done. And then you're sleeping. And so like, if, if, you, if you're struggling to sleep at night, great, great, great opportunity for you to sleep better. Read Leviticus. Most people don't even get out of the book of Levit- Leviticus and they just throw their hands up and say, I don't know this Old Testament. It is old. And so while it's important to study the book of Levit- Leviticus and to understand it, and to understand Exodus, it's probably not the best section of Scripture to really read and engage and encounter. The better candidates are the stories. And that's what Ruth is. Ruth is a story of the Old Testament, which leads to my second point. Why we need to study this book. Ruth is accessible as well as interesting. The story that is in the book of Ruth is accessible and interesting. Yes, there will be elements of the story that need to be explained, but by and large, at the heart of Ruth is a drama that unfolds from the beginning to end. There's history, there's heartbreak, there's tension, unexpected love, redemption. 
In many ways, this story has the making of a blockbuster movie. And so in diving into the story, we will see the Old Testament coming to the life right before our very eyes. And I believe it will compel all of us to understand the Old Testament in ways we've never understood it before. And like I said, to understand the Old Testament is to understand our faith. And so, this lively story, it is my hope to bring us into the story that the Old Testament might come to life for us. But there's a third reason why we're going to study the book of Ruth. And that is the story connects us to Jesus. When studying any book, and I mean any book, not just any Bible book, one of the best questions to ask to understand what the book is about is this. Why is it written? Seriously, and ask any question of any book. Why is it written? And you'll begin to understand what the purpose of it is. Well, the book of Ruth was written for one specific reason. And that is this. To give background on the great Jewish king, David. At the end of Ruth, you will find a genealogy. And it is the genealogy of King David. This is written, this book was written hundreds of years, uh, 100, 150, 200 years, uh, the exact date is beyond me. But it was written some 200 years after the story actually partake, took, took place. And it is so that the Israelites would see how God brought redemption and brought to them the great King David. You'll notice that as we read this story, there's not a lot of talk about God Himself. But it is a story of how God works. In many ways, I, as I've thought about this and as I've closed my eyes and imagined uh, what Ruth is like, it's like you see the shadow of God passing by. You don't see Him. It doesn't, you know, His hand is not at work and it's obvious like, oh, there's God. But it's like you see His shadow passing by. And indeed, as we read this story, I, I hope we see that same shadow. But what I want more than anything is to see the shadow of Christ. Because when we read the New Testament, we understand that it is King David from his family from which the great Redeemer will come, Jesus Christ. And so this story, Ruth, connects us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it is a story of how God moves and it moves in very shadow-like ways. There's a great book um, for children. Shoot, not for just children, but for all of us. But it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the tagline for that book is that every story whispers His name. That is Jesus. And what we're going to see in the book of Ruth is that indeed this story is whispering to us, God is bringing redemption. He's bringing us hope. And He's bringing it to us in unexpected ways. That's the story of Ruth. It is my hope that we see Jesus clearly. That it allows us to enter into the world of the Old Testament so that we have a solid, biblical faith. Not based off of just this kind of pie-in-the-sky stuff. No, that our faith is grounded in Scripture in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so that's why I'm excited to study the book of Ruth. So let's get to it. We're going to look at the book of Ruth, starting chapter 1, verse 1. And we're going to look at the first five verses today. So if you have your Bible, join me there. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. 
And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife had two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Paphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. Quick story about Orpah. There's a very famous person in our day and age named Oprah. And it was Oprah's mom who thought from this story that it was spelled O-P-R-A-H, Oprah. But her, her mom, Oprah's mom, drew it from this story. She just misspelled it. <laughs> so there's just a word on Orpah, <laughs> one of uh, Naomi's daughter-in-laws. So the Moabite woman's Orpah and Ruth. So the, the family lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husbands. At the beginning of this year, the movie Avengers Endgame was released to much fanfare. In, on record, and this is according to like three weeks ago, it is uh, on record as grossing close to $3 billion in revenue. $3 billion from one movie, Avengers Endgame. And I can only assume that some of you were contributors to that number. But i got to admit something about Avengers Endgames and the whole Avengers kind of series. It's just not for me. I just, I just don't relate. <laughs> I don't relate to it. I can't. Um, I'm not a huge fan. But I want to tell you why I'm not a huge fan. See, see every good story has tension. This is the nature of true stories. It, they, they create this tension, and then they resolve this tension. It's every story. And Avengers certainly meets this requirement. But here's the problem with movies like that. It is a tension that I just don't relate with. It's like fabricated. For example, in that movie, and I haven't even seen it. I had to read about it because I just don't care about it. But it says that Tony Stark is running out of oxygen in space. What are they going to do? And some of you who are like Avenger Endgames are like, you don't even know what you're talking about. But I, I don't know what it's like to be in space running out of oxygen. Like, let's just get real. And so I'm like, oh my goodness. some you know, I, It's just not for me. I need movies that I can relate with. I need movies that I can like feel like I'm on the edge of my seat and I'm like wrapped up. Like the movie Free Solo, also released within the last year. Have you seen or heard of this movie Free Solo? Just all you have to do when you go home, you don't have to watch the movie. Just watch the trailer. You will literally not breathe the entire time you're watching this movie. So the essence of this free solo is a documentary, a real-life documentary of this guy who decides to free, free climb El Capitan at Yosemite Park. It's a 3,000-foot mountain with, that means climbing 3,000 feet without any ropes. So if he falls, it's done. And so the whole movie, or really it's a documentary, is of him and his journey about preparing to climb the mountain. And you know, here's the thing, here's what's great about it. You know that he makes it. Everyone knows that he makes it. But you watch the movie and you, you don't breathe the entire time. And you're like, oh my gosh, what a movie. I would never do that. This guy's crazy. You see, the tension that that movie creates is real. 
and you can feel it, and you feel it deep down in your bones. That's, that's what a good story does. That, it, that as it unfolds, you are sitting on the edge of your seat, and you, and you just are going, okay, how, how does this resolve? It's a good story. Ruth is a good story. You know why Ruth is a good story? Because it's tension we can all feel. In the beginning of Ruth 1, it is intense, intense tension. Now you might say, what? These five verses are intense? Are you kidding me? I mean, it's just like facts. There's, just, there's nothing really to this. But here's the thing. If you were around the time when this book was written, some 200 or so years after the story took place, you would very much sense the tension from the very get-go. It would be like, where? literally, they would have read this story and go, where is this story going from here? The story at the end of verse 5 is done. It's a story that ha- the end is already written. And so this is the tension that they would have been feeling. The original readers would have said, that's the worst story ever because that's the end of the story and that's all we got. And so we need to feel this tension ourselves. And we need to connect with this. And that is what I'm going to do for us this morning. I'm going to enter us into the story like they would have read it 200 years after the story began. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at the three scenes in these five verses. And I'm going to draw out the tension from these five verses. That's all I'm going to do. And then following that, I'm going to spend some time making three brief observations for us today as we've gone through and watched this story unfold and the tension that unfolds at the beginning of this story. So let's go with me. Let's go to this story once again. Go to the three scenes of Ruth 1, 1 through 5. The first scene we will find in Ruth 1, 1 through 5 is in Bethlehem. The first words that we read in this time is that Um, The time frame of this book is the days when the judges ruled. You see that in verse 1. The book begins saying this is the time when the judges ruled. When the judges ruled, Israel, this nation, experienced many turbulent days. In fact, the last line of the book of Judges, which precedes the book of Ruth, concludes with this line. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, the time in which this story of Ruth takes place is a chaotic and tumultuous and turbulent time. Read the book of Judges and you will read of families warring against each other. You will read of grotesque murders, as is the case with the Levite and his concubine. You will read of child sacrifices in this nation of Israel when Jephthah Jephthah murders his daughter. You will read of the great idolatry as was the case of the tribe of Dan and its idols. Culturally speaking, the time of the judges was a godless and ruleless time. There was no king. There was no ruler. But the story of Ruth isn't about the nation of Israel. It is in fact about a specific family in a specific place during this time. The family is led by a man named Elimelech, whose name, interestingly enough, means this, God is my king. And this family comes from the village of Bethlehem. Now many of us know the village of Bethlehem because it is the birthplace of Christ. And remember what I told you. 
This story is about Christ. Where was Christ born? In Bethlehem. We'll get to that later on. And this is not ironic, of course. But what is ironic is this. That Bethlehem, as a name, means this. The house of bread. One cannot only imagine that why this town became known as the house of bread. It's pretty simple. At one point in the history of this town, a lot of bread must have been made. And so as you peer out from Bethlehem, you can envision you know, fields of wheat just everywhere. This is the town which the bread of Israel is made. But what is ironic about this? We see that in Bethlehem, there is a famine. So the, the, the fields are not white for harvest. The, the wheat has died. And why is this the case? Well, if you study the Old Testament, you know that the reason why there's a famine in the land is because of the disobedience of Israel. This is what the book of Deuteronomy says. In, in the book of Deuteronomy is a book of Jewish laws. God tells Israel in this book that if they disobey them, He would make the heavens like brass. The crops would fail and the harvest would be blighted. But return to the Lord and He will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. He will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your ground. And so because this was the time of Judges, God was only doing what He said He would do. God is saying... I'm drying up the land. You don't have food because you are disobeying me. One commentator saying this, that God is saying to this family as well as to the whole nation, little family, set in my covenant community, return to me. Call upon me and I will have mercy on you. Repent of your sins. I will come to you with forgiveness and grace. I will restore to you everything that has now been taken from you. I don't desire to do you harm, but to do you good. Return to me. Come to me. But they don't. And this little family, like so many of us, decides to go our own way. And so scene one ends with Elimelech failing to turn back to God and rather choosing, what to, choosing to do what was right in his own eyes by making himself and his family immigrants in a foreign land. Thus, transitioning from scene one to scene two. The land of the second scene is the land of Moab. The land of Moab has a sordid history. The Moabites are known descendants of Lot and his firstborn daughter. Let me say this again. The Moabites are descendants of Lot and his firstborn daughter, meaning they're an incestuous people. I mean, we make fun of, of like West Virginia for this. This is the way, in many ways, in which the Israelites were thinking about this stuff. And I'm sorry if there's any West Virginians in this. I'm just telling you what people talk about. Okay, they say this about Arkansas in certain spots too. I, I get it. I've heard it all. And so, but despite that, that's the way the Moabites were seen, especially by the Jews. They're an incestuous people. But making the Moabites even more distasteful in the eyes of Jews was the fact that they were polytheistic, meaning they believed in multiple gods. And the most notable amongst the gods was the god Chemosh, who was known in that time to receive child sacrifices. So rather than turning, so they this, so rather than turning to the one true God who says, "If you return to me, I will give you fruit," they turned to the Moabites. Who, who worship Chamath, who, who welcomes child sacrifices so that they might find food. 
They don't turn to God, they turn to Chamash. Bringing his family and making them immigrants. And you know, we don't even know if Elimelech finds relief. For in this text it says that he dies. It's almost like he gets there and he dies. You know, like what is going on? We don't know. But we do know that Naomi and her sons make it. And they find relief from the famine that they, they move to Moab to find relief from. And then it says that they live there for 10 years. But in the midst of that 10 years, Malon and Chilion do something that was deeply forbidden by Jews. They marry Moabite woman. They marry, perhaps, the descendants of incestuous people. And certainly they are. They marry them. According to Deuteronomy 23, which again was Israel, Jewish law for them, said this, anyone who marries a Moabite would be forbidden from the, the nation of Israel for 400 years. And this is what Elimelech, Elimelech's sons do. They willingly choose to marry Moabite women. Think about how hard it is for Naomi to see her sons marry Moabite women. Um, my mom grew up Catholic. My dad grew up Methodist. And when they got together, they decided, well, should we, should we get married in the Catholic church? And so my dad met with the priest. And the priest said, no, you have to raise your kids as Catholic for me to marry you. And my dad says, no, I'm not going to do that. And so they made the decision to not get married in the Catholic church. This infuriated my grandma so much so it hurt her so much so that she didn't even go to my mom's wedding. She had to be walked down the aisle by her brother. Now put this into a culture that says you should not marry someone from this area of the world and if you do, you cannot even come into the nation for 400 years. Think about the pain of Naomi. She just lost her husband and now her sons are turning to Moabite women thus keeping her from ever going back to Israel. Because this is her family. This is her heritage. Think about it. Think about the pain she must be feeling. Oh, the pain gets deeper too. Because there's one thing that this text leaves out that is so vital in the life and the history of this time period. Progeny. The culture in this time period... And certainly we experience it a little bit here. The, the culture revolved around the family, especially male children. If you had a male children, your family was found incredibly valuable. And yet, there were no kids. Not even girls. Not men. One commentator says this, the fact that not one pregnancy in the course of the ten years that is... That is Excuse me. The fact that one, not one pregnancy in the course of ten years is omitted suggests a whole new layer of suffering afflicting this family. Given a woman's normal menstrual cycle, Naomi and her daughters-in-law endured 240 agonizing disappointments. I mean, that is month after month of pain. My husband's dead and my boys aren't giving birth. I have no life, no value. What's the matter with you guys? I know infertility carries its own shame today. I mean, we know this personally, Kimberly and I, because we struggled for some time to get pregnant before we had Benjamin. And we even lost some. But in the culture in which this story takes place, the pain and shame that would have been experienced 
would be infinitely magnified for them. Most people at this point would wave the white flag saying, too much, too much, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. I'm in a land far away from home. My sons are infertile. My husband's dead. I don't know the customs. The gods they worship receive child sacrifices. I'm done. I can't take it anymore. But things continue to get worse for Naomi. This leads us to the last scene. Scene number three, which I call rock bottom. Scene three is short on drama, but clear on details. It says that Naomi's sons die, thus leaving her without any family, leaving her without any lineage. The family line is done. This past week, I spent some time in Memphis to discuss church planting. And while there, a group of us went out to have some drinks and and to hang out, just to be with one another. And one of the, the, the other pastors that was there had a friend, and he happened to show up, and we just got to talking. And we had a great time. Then he dropped this line on me. He goes, I lost my seven-year-old daughter in April. I was like, you what? Yeah, and two years ago, I lost my six-year-old daughter. I was like, oh, my word. His daughter's had a degenerative disease in their brain, and the brain just started to shut down and both of them had this disorder and it's one of the most heartbreaking things. <laughs> and I think I have stress. This man lost his daughters. And his phone was on the table and he clicked it and there was a picture of him and his little daughter on her shoulder smiling. I couldn't stop thinking about this man all week. Still think about him. Because all, all I can do is kind of relate to him saying, man, I can't imagine losing my kids. And you lost your daughters. You know, I think many of us can relate to a man like that. And so could Naomi. She lost everything. She lost her husband. And now she loses her sons. Her life is over. Many ways, scene three ends with Naomi on the ground. Her story is ended. There is no hope. She's an old woman. She can't give birth again. And her sons are dead. It's almost like the scene three ends and the curtain closes and all you have and all we have to go off is just pure rock bottom life. I think we can relate in many ways to that rock bottom too. While we might not experience the death of children, the death of a husband, the rebellion of our boys or children to us, I think we can relate in some ways to the suffering she goes through. You see, this is the tension of Ruth 1. This is the tension that the readers who originally reading this would have felt and experienced. Where where is Naomi going to go from here? Where's the hope? Certainly we'll get into that hope. But I want to make three brief observations kind of three kind of movie critic guides to these three things about rock bottom. And then we'll be done. And here's the three things that I want us to talk about, especially about rock bottom. The first thing is this. We can't discredit rock bottom. We cannot discredit our rock bottom. No one likes to feel depressed or broken. No one likes feeling like there's not any hope left. 
And no one should ever desire to be on the floor like Naomi at rock bottom. You should never desire that. It's a depressing and difficult situation. However, you should not discredit this place. Because it is this place that awakens us to what is real and to what is wrong and to what is actually right. There is something that good times in our life cannot do. There is something that good times cannot do. And that is to cause us to realize our complete and utter dependence on God. When things are good, hey, I'm good. When things are bad, we find ourselves on our knees. And we shouldn't discredit this time. At Harvest Fest last weekend, I was sharing our faith with a teenager. He was curious about the church and was wondering what it is that Christians believe. And one of the things that he, he was articulating to me was he's never felt God. And so as I listened to him talk about his faith, he just said, well, all, all I know about the Christian faith is it just saves you from hell. And hell was this scary thing for him. And so I did the best that I could. I did the best and clearest articulation of what salvation through Christ means. But one thing was absolutely clear in his life. And that was this. He hadn't hit rock bottom with his sin. He did not realize that he needed a Savior for his sins. He knew he needed a Savior from this place called hell. And he thought he just needed to believe in God. But he had not hit rock bottom in his sins. Where his sins go, I have offended an infinite God. I have broken His law and I deserve every form of punishment He gives to me. I deserve this. I need saving from that. He hadn't experienced it. But when you hit rock bottom, those are the very words you utter. And so my friends, do not discredit going to rock bottom. It's okay. Don't even fight trying to do this. And this is what we end up doing. Hey, I just got to keep swimming. I got to keep swimming. I got to keep floating. I got to keep surviving. I got to keep working so that I don't hit rock bottom. Naomi hit rock bottom by God's grace. And it was hard. So what I want to tell you is this. Don't discredit rock bottom. Don't fight going down. Because this leads me to the second point I want to make. Rock bottom is not hopeless. Rock bottom is not hopeless. I want you to realize this, and some biblical scholars have begin to think about this, and I think that they make a great point. Biblical scholars are starting to say that Naomi is the female Job. Like Job, she moves through one loss after another. Her homeland, her husband, her children... Each loss seemingly being worse than the next. But unlike Job, she loses actually more. Woman, Naomi is a woman. Job is a man. And in a patriarchal society, a woman was in many ways cast aside. Job could still continue on making you know, children. Naomi couldn't. And so it's not far-fetched for us to say that whose situation was worse. Job's or Naomi's? Naomi. She had hit rock bottom. She had no hope of a family to come. She had hit rock bottom. But there was only one hope she had. That was that God would meet her at the bottom. God was her only hope. 
And of course, what we will see in the story, and this is why the story is so profound, it is God who reaches down deep into the rock bottom and gets her. The only way she could find hope is if God reached down to the bottom. And we will see this is exactly what God does in the book of Ruth. There is no such thing as a hopeless situation or a hopeless cause. There is no such thing as a hopeless person. You may know some people who you say, there is no way that God could ever reach them. There's no way. They're antagonistic. They are actually, they consider themselves atheists, but there is no such person as a hopeless cause. Because God can reach down into the most rock bottom of places. We must remember that as we are sinking down, if we experience a sinking down place, we must remember there is no such place that is hopeless for our God. Thirdly, I should say the first one is that do not discredit rock bottom. Rock bottom is not hopeless. And lastly, rock bottom actually reveals God's most amazing work. Rock bottom reveals God's most amazing work. We're going to find out in short time how God indeed works through this situation. And it's going to come in one of the most unlikeliest of places. Through a Moabite woman. It's going to come from a woman who was despised by Jews, who was considered to come from an incestuous people, who was not allowed to come into the presence of Jews. And this woman is going to come and bring redemption. An unexpected place. God is going to use that which is disgusting and despicable to bring about redemption. I want you to know this. This is how God works. God works in our hopeless situations in unexpected ways. It is the essence of our faith. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, the disciples of Jesus threw up their hands, hypothetically, saying, it is done. We're done. This is a hopeless situation. And they go to their houses and they just hide out, just thinking, okay, let's just go be fishermen again. For, for all that we believe in Jesus, it's done. It's hopeless. Jesus is dead. But we know the story of our faith does not end on the cross. We know that that's just the beginning. As is the case in the book of Ruth. For from the tomb comes Christ. An unexpected place of redemption. Whoever would have thought Whoever would have thought redemption would have come from an empty tomb? A disgusting, smelly, stinky place. But you see, this is what our God does. He goes to the hopeless. He goes to rock bottom and works redemption. He goes to Naomi at rock bottom and brings redemption through a Moabite woman. He goes to the grave a hopeless place, and brings us redemption through the resurrection. Rock bottom reveals God's work. We must sit in it, but we must remember those things. Let me pray. God, we hate our rock bottoms. We hate even the process of going to rock bottoms.
some of us might feel like we're at rock bottom, and it's not. It's not even the beginning. That we're in the midst of a famine and we're heading to a place where we're going to be crippled and on the ground. Those are hard. It's hard for us to deal with pain and suffering and depression and discouragement. But what this reminds us is, what your text reminds us is that despite those times, they're not hopeless. And so I pray that those of us that find ourselves at rock bottom would indeed experience relief soon, very soon, from your son Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, come by your grace and meet us at rock bottom and bring about, bring about hope and redemption for us. Pray this in Jesus' name.